0: Wait
1: a minute. Wait a minute. Rolling, take one. Is it going
2: to be all right? Hello and welcome to all through a
3: This is a podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya, And I'm Eric. And on this episode, it's basically all Laura Webb Nichols. Never heard of her? Well, that's about to change. We'll tell you a little bit about her life, her photos, and we'll talk to the woman responsible for saving her collection. And speaking of saving collections, we're covering how places like the Smithsonian preserve their photography archives and how we can do a little better in our own archiving. Not only that, but Tiffin Sinclair will be dropping by once again. Oh, and we've got some zines, but first, Mm -hmm. Eric. Yes? How the hell are you?
2: Well, this has been a week, hasn't it?
3: Yes, it has.
2: (laughs) It's been a crazy little week. I have shot nothing again. I have developed nearly 100 sheets of X-ray film, though. Wow. Yeah. And so after a lot of trial and error, which I guess people who've listened to the podcast might know a little bit about, I tried various tanks, some different hangers, those Yankee hangers or whatever, and they were all awful for for X-ray. They're good for a lot of things, but not for X-ray. So I had to rip. I had to get out the tickle tent again, and I developed in trays.
3: Well, that's a lot of tickling.
2: It was a hundred sheets of tickling, yes. (laughs) I felt like the princess in the pea. It takes a lot longer, but it's worth it. Every sheet was, it was properly developed with no streaks, no weird highlights, no weird chemical surges. There were tons of light leaks from my shitty camera, but that was my own fault, and I can't really blame the tickle tent or anything but me for that. You know, I developed a role or two here or there, I guess, but mostly it was just that. I've done nothing with the camera and, you know, I still, that's been about a month now, hasn't it?
3: About, but it's kind of hilarious that you're like, oh, I've done nothing. He's literally like sent me like five different zines he's working on right now. He's insane. I've sent you two. And I have a new three. one. But three. Okay. <laughs> <sent you> <laughs> I'm very busy right now. <laughs> okay, well, so just because you're not shooting doesn't mean you're not doing anything photo related.
2: That's true. There's a lot more to photography than taking pictures. Just take picture. pictures,
3: baby. <laughs> yeah,
2: there's b- bitching about photography online. That's an exactly. important part of photography. <laughs> How about you? What have what you been up to?
3: Oh, same kind of like a crazy week. I've had a little bit of a dental journey the past few months. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if I even shared this on the podcast, but I took a surfboard to the face before I went on vacation. And I cracked several of my teeth and had a temporary tooth put in. Uh, I finally got that crowned and it's been nothing but but issues. Uh, it's very sensitive and it looks like I might actually need to get a root canal on that tooth. Unfortunately.
2: I heard root canals are a lot of fun. Is that true?
3: Yes, I have. I've heard the same thing. I'm really excited about that, nice. especially since I've been working on this tooth for like the past, like two months. It's driving me nuts, but you know, good news. I broke another tooth. How about that? <laughs> so I mean, yeah, I stop now. Exactly. So I had to get that one removed. That one, um, was taken out two days ago and I have stitches in my mouth. It has been awful. Honestly, I can't wait to just like be able to feel normal again, honestly.
2: <laughs> yeah, that sucks. I'm sorry, I had a it's... lot of dental, work, including a couple of root canals. And yeah, it sucks. It, it does. really does.
3: On a lighter note, I got a helmet for my surf photography and it's kind of amazing, honestly. I'm really super excited about it. In my mind, I was like, okay, all the kids are gonna go back back to school and you know, I get to get back on my regular routine. I've been trying to go out there and swim and take some pictures with my Pentax 645 housing. And after that first day, I literally got out of the water and went straight to ET Surf, it's my local surf shop, to purchase the helmet because it was just kind of insane.
2: I think a lot of our listeners, maybe myself included, until I talk to you more about this, why do you need a helmet to go swimming?
3: <laughs> I live where a lot of people live as well. And that means that there's more people in the water. And since COVID happened, there's been this like surge of new people surfing because we've had all this time on our hands, which yeah. is great. I'm you know stoked for everybody, but it's also very dangerous. And there's been a few times where... I just don't trust people and where their boards are going to be flying. And I mean, I don't even trust myself. What happened four months ago to me? My freaking surfboard flew into my face. So yeah. it happened. Yeah. So I was just like, you know what? It's a big white helmet. It's going to keep me safe. It's going to keep me very visible. So when the waves get bigger, people can see where I'm at. And yeah, I don't regret the decision. I think it was kind of perfect.
2: You You look pretty badass in the helmet Oh, I love too. it. Are I you, love the helmet. It's really hardcore.
3: I already have a Surf Martian sticker on it. Oh, seriously? It's, Do you yeah. have
2: a, a Conspiracy of Photographers sticker on
3: that too? Not yet. I'm kind of waiting for a specific color. Fine. Black and yellow, black and yellow. <laughs> I have a funny history about helmets that I will go into another time. No, you Let's won't. Just... <laughs> I knew it. I knew you were going <laughs> to.
2: Nope. <laughs> we need to talk about this right now. Okay. Please tell me, what is your history with helmets?
3: <laughs> okay. So uh, this is very not punk rock of me. i <laughs> sorry. <laughs> when I was about 10 years old, my little brother, who was probably like seven at the time, decided that it was a good idea to tie his bike to his friend's bike and then go down this hill and make like this really like steep kind of like turn. Well, yeah, that that would work. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, your kids you are like, let's tie this shit together. (laughs) Well... Because of that, his friend made the turn too sharp and my brother came swinging around and hit a cement light pole and cracked his head like straight open, brains coming out like the whole bit. He ended up having to go to the hospital like, and he has this like amazing Harry Potter scar. Uh, I didn't visit him in the hospital because my parents didn't want me to see him but when he came back, he was like stitched up black and blue and swollen and he looked basically like Quasimodo and it was like terrifying. I have a picture... <laughs> Because again, with the with the mom emulsion, my mom took a picture of us together right after I saw him. I was crying, so like you could tell that I'm all puffy eyed because I was so sad to see my little brother like that. And we have ice creams in her hand. She's like, "Here, have some ice cream, and let me take a picture of this." <laughs>
2: Your mom was a little sadistic.
3: (laughs) I know. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. So yeah, I have like, um, the memory is ingrained. And I've actually showed when my stepkids were a little bit younger, I showed both of them that picture. Like, this is my brother. This is what he used to look like because he didn't wear a helmet. I was like called to action, and I decided <laughs> <laughs> that it was really important that everybody wore helmets on the street because it was safer and there's a lot of cars, so I made a helmet club
2: <laughs> what was the, what was the helmet club?
3: <laughs> well, it was a tent that was posted up in my front yard okay. and we would go in there and talk about like what we can do to like promote like helmets and uh, we would like write like posters saying like you know to wear a helmet it's safe and then there was like those like mean kids you know, that are probably like Trump supporters now, but like ripped the <laughs> signs down, you know, because like, they they were like, no, no helmets. But it was like, <laughs> this passion I had, because I saw firsthand what happened to my brother. And it was like, kind of devastating. And that's kind of how like, I coped with it as yeah. a kid. Yeah. So yeah, so I had a helmet club. And it was like, I mean, I didn't even know how to have a club. You know, when you're a kid, you're just like, yeah, we're going to have this club. We're going to do car washes sure. and, and and we're going to, like, earn money and, like, try to do important things for the helmet club, like buy helmets and give it to people and things like that. The one thing we did was, like, we... <laughs> We sang the Pledge of Allegiance like in the beginning of the. You sang it. (laughs) Yeah.
2: How do you sing the Pledge of Allegiance?
3: Well, you know, like we had to do it. Like, you know, you just like say it, just like in school, like before school starts, you do the Pledge of Allegiance. We did the same thing, you know, because I was like, all right, well, this is going to be like super official. So we're going to do this. I am now officially mortified. And oh my gosh, okay. I'm like sweating now. (laughs) Wow.
2: (laughs) It's always good to make you as uncomfortable as possible at the beginning of the podcast, so the episode goes well.
3: <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. I, honestly, I don't. I. I don't mind. Now.
2: It's... No. It's. It's adorable, and I mean, it's just. It's just. I mean, it, it's smart. You know, the, and it really kind of. It's sort of a, a weird precursor to what's happening now with people and not wanting to wear masks because the government's <laughs> trying to control us by. Making us wear masks. I was masks. definitely
3: trying to control my whole neighborhood for sure. I think sure. you were,
2: yeah. I was. Oh, God. I was
3: basically the government.
2: This is so sad. <laughs> so, okay, speaking of the pandemic.
3: Yes. It's
2: been going on for 18 months at this point, 19 months, something like <laughs> I that. Don't. I don't know, eight years, 10 years. It's <laughs> a long time. But neither of us have fallen into this, this trap of buying an air fryer.
3: Yeah, I'm kind of like proud of myself for not getting one yet.
2: <laughs> yeah, none of us have done it. Can you imagine if, if the pandemic would happen like five, six years ago, we'd all be like dump baking stuff.
3: Right? Or like, what is that? The uh, crock pot stuff or whatever? That's
2: true. The In- Instapot?
3: Instapot. That no, Yeah, that like happened pretty a couple big. of
2: years before, but it was mm-hmm. air fryers this time. And have you, you've have not gotten one? We've resisted this?
3: Yeah. I, okay, I'm not going to lie. It looks super interesting. And I know I would fry the shit out of everything for sure. And I think that's why I'm just like, okay, I, I, I can't do this right now.
2: No, no. See, I see what you're getting at. I see where you're coming from. But you know that like a really nice air fryer, it can also, it can take the place of your toaster oven.
3: Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is this, is this what is happening for sure? Are I mean, you replacing your toaster oven with an air fryer?
2: I mean, it's, it maybe. It makes oh sense. Oh my
3: God. It makes you sense. You fucking cracked before me. That's hilarious. I
2: did. And this is a lot to do with, with Liz Potter and I were talking today. <laughs> And there, she made a lot of good points.
3: <laughs> you know, honestly, I should just have Liz, like, try to convince, like, my parents to get vaccinated. <laughs> well, she wasn't, I mean,
2: it, she she is convincing. <laughs> but, I mean, it was just like, oh, here, I made, she, I, she had popcorn tofu. <gasps> you know, Wait. Like, like popcorn chicken, but not dead. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Oh shit, I didn't even think of that. Like all the possibilities. Yeah, she sent me a
2: recipe. And I'm like, this is pretty cool, but can you make pakoras? I mean, they're batter dips, gonna get everywhere. And she's like, yeah, I made pakoras. And I'm like, oh, god damn you, Liz Potter. God
3: damn <laughs> you.
0: Oh my gosh, I can't believe it.
2: Each episode we put on our house slippers and our cozy cardigans and check our answering machine. For some reason, we need to just dress differently when we're when we're checking messages. Yeah, it's like Not, Mr.
3: Rogers, come on.
2: he did he he didn't really check his answering machine though, did he? Oh my Wait, God. did Mr. Rogers have an answering machine? I don't know
3: if he had one actually. But like, I know, he but I know obviously obviously that when he went into the house, the, he like put on his sli- he took his shoes well, off, of put his slippers on, took his like put a cardigan on, you know? It's like Who would have left him messages? his neighbors
2: that is so awesome
3: <laughs> we're supposed to be checking the answering machine oh, by shit. the
2: way Let's do that. okay so we ask listeners to call in and leave us a message answering whatever weird ass question we come up with
3: what was the question this this time around vanya tell us about a near perfect day or spot where everywhere you looked there was a photo
2: awesome so
3: push the button
0: I'm glad you called, but I'm not home, but I'll be back before too long. You gotta seek your stuff and your number too, and this
4: is all you've got to do. Wait for the beat. You gotta leave your name, you gotta leave your number. Wait for
0: the beat. Hey Eric and Vanya, this is Nolan at Nolan and j on Instagram. For me uh the perfect like day or spot where there was just literally not a bad photo around is anywhere along the lake superior shoreline in the up of michigan i'm from the up so maybe i'm a bit biased but i honestly can't take a bad photo on the shoreline of that lake Living in other parts of Michigan, I can tell you that all of the coastline and all of the lighthouses also make for some amazing, amazing images. The wave action and the lighthouses and some of the storms in the wintertime, just incredible. Hope you guys could uh, make it out here sometime. I know Vanya people do surf in in Lake Superior um, in the winter, so that would be something to check off your bucket list.
3: Oh, it's on there.
2: Oh, I bet. I've seen. I mean, this, this is hardcore surfing.
3: I mean, I don't have a beard, but I kind of want a frosty beard. You know what I mean? Like a picture of me with you a mean. frosty beard.
2: <laughs> You've never been up there?
3: No, I haven't. It looks, it, it does look amazing. And honestly, it reminds me of our first ever episode where that guy said that you should live somewhere for a year before you photograph it. I could um, see that. Yeah. <laughs> he lives there, and he has a close relationship with with you know the landscape. Yeah. So he sees it through the summer, all the all the months. yeah, and I could see being comfortable with a place like that where you appreciate your you know your home in that way. and that's kind of amazing,
0: honestly. yeah,
2: yeah I wish I had something like that.
0: Hey, all through a lens in my city, there's a man-made strip of land that goes out into the water, and it's kind of made out of old construction waste and kind of garbage and things like that it's just a long strip that you can bike on it became a recreational area and environmental conservation area and what i like so much about it is in every direction there is skyline there is kind of cool textures of the garbage like construction rebar bricks uh, all kinds of weird rocks And there's wildlife. You can see, I've seen like foxes and birds. Uh, So you can really make interesting compositions out of the garbage framing and take skyline pictures, water, sailboat pictures. Everywhere you turn, it's great. Thanks.
2: I don't know where this is. I have a feeling it's Canada. But yeah, I've seen a few places like that near Canada. There's a town right at the border I can't remember the name of it, but the town right below it, where you can see the Peace Arch from, there is a strip of land. It may be garbage. I know that that Washington was really into making land out of garbage for a while. How all of downtown Seattle is garbage. I mean, <laughs> that's not a commentary. I mean, like the, well, the, the fill is all Manhattan garbage. Manhattan
3: is too, right? Like at least like the edges of some, it. Some
2: of it is, yeah. So I
3: it's mean, definitely a thing
2: you can do. I don't know. Yeah. I want to know where this is. I kind of want to kind of want to check that out when we can when we're allowed to go back to Canada. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, that would
2: be really awesome. When will you have us back, Canada? <laughs> when?
3: Hey guys, it's Bay at Barry on Film on Instagram. Uh, my perfect photo day was when my dad took me out to the industrial part of
2: my uh, my steel manufacturing town, and there were just incredible shapes and smokestacks, and the light was just perfect. And there was this amazing building that had no signage on it whatsoever, except for an open sign. And it was very eerie. And I took photos of it for about
3: 20 minutes. It was great. Thanks, guys. <laughs> I'm into it. <laughs> I
2: discovered the industrial part of Seattle last winter. And I, you know, you've know, you seen all of the photos from that. There's something, I don't know, that draws me to things like that. I didn't have that growing up at all. My mm-hmm. dad worked in a, a like he's a machinist and I worked there for a little bit too, but that's not the same thing as a steel manufacturing town like like Pittsburgh or um, I think she might be from Canada too. Is everybody from Canada today?
3: I don't know, maybe. <laughs> I think so. I, I know that some people like may love and hate this, but looking looking at the world as a photographer has been just one of my most favorite things ever because you can go somewhere where there's a bunch of trash and you can still see something beautiful to photograph. You can go to an industrial part of town where the s- signs are all ripped up but you see something there. You see these special things and you know, photographers, artists, people, you know, we look at we l- we look with different eyes and I love that.
2: Yeah, I think we compose. Yeah. And so it really doesn't matter so much what the subject is as far as composition goes. We're just like, "Oh, this thing looks good." Against this thing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And th- th- those things can be garbage sometimes. <laughs> that might be a commentary on my own work. <laughs>
0: Hey, this is Dan Tree. My Instagram is DanTreePhoto. My perfect day of shooting uh, was a couple years ago. I was in Salt Lake and and taking photos of an old abandoned hotel um, and really liking a lot of the shots that I was getting from there. Um, I even had a cat wander into the shot, which of course makes everything better. I still had another half roll, so I went out to the Great Salt Lake and took photos out there. And at some point, I realized that I was hitting uh, number 40 on my exposure. And that's when I realized that I had never actually properly loaded the film. Um, so all those amazing shots that day were nothing.
3: Oh, no. <laughs> that's...
2: That has never
3: happened to me, I guess. Oh, it, it has for sure. Really? Yeah, I've shot a whole roll of like amazing barrel shots and stuff on my camera. And I open up my camera oh. and there's no film in there. Definitely.
2: That's def- it's just devastating. And for it being such a wonderful day, I've shot like old hotels in Salt Lake City and mm-hmm. the Salt Lake and all of that. I can't imagine like losing those shots. We always say, they're like, oh well, like you know, the great thing about photography is the experience of taking the shot. And yeah, but also you know, seeing the photos later—that's that's a pretty important part too. Yeah, with a
3: cat. I yeah. mean, how are you going to get a cat next time? You got to like hire a cat. Yeah, I mean we're.
2: <laughs> I mean, you can hire a cat at Hire a Cat Incorporated, but their, their rates aren't cheap.
3: No, not these days. No,
2: they've unionized.
0: Kyoto is the most peaceful, quiet, small town of about 10 million people you could ever visit. Even at the famous Fushimi Inari shrine where throngs of tourists pack their way through tight little torii gates, you can step just outside and feel as if you're alone with the fox gods. I left them a little offering, stepped into the bamboo forest, and found a little break in the bamboo where I could see the Kyoto Tower. But I felt about the same in that bamboo forest as I did when I was lost on the back streets the day before. Kyoto is a peaceful place, even compared to the rest of Japan, and Robert McNamara had been there before World War II, and that's how it narrowly escaped being hit with a nuclear bomb. And so now, when you're there, you're in Kyoto. Everywhere you look, there's something. There's no tract housing. No skid row, just history and a sense of peace.
3: Uh, definitely on my bucket list as well. Marley as well. She wants to go. I told her I want to come with her. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, I see. You've invited yourself along.
3: Uh, yeah, <laughs> <Okay>. obviously. <laughs> she can leave me there. I'm fine with that. <laughs> but just to see the cherry blossoms and just like, oh, I'm I'm so into it. I'm so into it. It reminds
2: me just him, the way he talked about it. And this is going to be, I guess, probably for nobody because nobody's really seen this. In the 80s, Akira Kurosawa made a movie called Dreams, and one of the dreams is about the fox's wedding, I think it's called. And uh, I guess in Japan, when it rains and it's sunning out at the same time—that's not how you say that—but when it's raining and sunny out at the same time, they call that the fox's wedding.
3: Mm -hmm. They call it—
2: Yeah. When the devil beats his wife or something. Yeah, that's that's, what I say. When the devil
3: beats his wife. I kind of
2: like Fox's Wedding, maybe a tiny (laughs) bit better. Yeah, Fox's
3: Wedding is better, but I just remember hearing that like as a kid and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever.
2: Your three months in Memphis has really fucked you up. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Literally. And I was there for like nine months, okay? Okay,
2: fine, fine, fine. And this is the last one. So, hello friends, my name is Or Sachs and I'm from Israel. And the best place I ever taken photos in are in Iceland. It has the most beautiful soft light and amazing colors. And uh, there's light most of the day during the summer. I shot nine rolls of color, amazing photos. Two of them were A6, and actually four of them are hanging in my house. Huge, huge prints it's amazing. So my friends go to Iceland. It's amazing.
3: Another place I really, really want to go. And they're surfing there too.
2: It, they're surfing in Iceland? Mm-hmm. hmm Well, that's pretty cool. I would, yeah, I want to go. It, it really reminds me of Eastern Washington. Like yeah. a lot of the photos that I see of it, it's the, the basalts and the coolies and all that really remind me of Eastern Washington. But green, yeah. Eastern Washington is, is green for a little bit in the spring. And then it just goes brown. The whole time
3: yeah it looks so magical i actually looked into just like getting a van or something that i could do the water crossings and then like camp in iceland oh my god it just is awesome also i wouldn't mind going with or because he seems like the type kind of like my mom like talks to everybody you end up like doing like rad shit like because he gets invited everywhere because he's so nice you know what i mean
2: are you saying that we're just awful people and nobody invites us?
3: No, I'm just saying, like, he's so friendly and, like, <laughs> easy to talk to. I could absolutely love going yeah. somewhere and meeting him and having a photo day.
2: Well, that's all of the answering machine messages we've got. So, our answers to this will come shortly in about a week during dev party. That's how we're doing it now. We'll be answering this question ourselves during dev party. But first, the next question for the Ooh, next episode.
3: We already got it. We've Look already at us, got being it. all prepared. Oh my God, we
2: are like fucking professional now.
3: <laughs> what is it? Photography is largely a solo venture. How has it changed your comfort with being alone?
2: All right, leave us a message. now for something completely tiffin.
5: Howdy partners, we're out here getting fit with film. I'm currently sitting atop a rock formation on the shore somewhere between Huntington Beach and Bolsa Chica. I have my RB67 mounted on my tripod and I'm waiting for the sun to set at the perfect angle so I can capture this image I've been seeing in my mind's eye for a while. I'm somewhat optimistic that today might be the day. I even know what I'm going to title the image to. Which is rare for me because I usually tend to shy away from naming my images and stuff. Mainly because... I don't know, it's hard to explain. Maybe some of you out there might be able to relate. But yeah, if I'm successful this evening and if I do walk away with the image I want, which I won't even be certain of until I scan the role, I will title the frame, Heaven Surrounds You. And no, this isn't a nod at that one ban. But barring religiosity, that phrase carries a profound personal meaning because it's one of those things I silently whisper to myself whenever I'm having a less than stellar day. It's a phrase I use to comfort my friends or just remind others that although things might feel a bit shitty at times, there's goodness and beauty all around us. And somehow, two weeks ago, as I was walking down the shore trying to collect some seashells cause I'm a soft girl like that, I came across this perfect spot on the beach. I can't tell you the exact location because it's literally just a small portion on the shore but for those of you who are really dedicated to the cause, I can follow up with coordinates via Google Maps. It has a pretty mellow swash zone, or what I've been told is the swash zone. I don't know, I'm hella unreliable, so please don't take my word for it. But just for the sake of attempting to provide you with the visual, I'm talking about that sweet spot on the beach where the water comes in and sort of covers the shore and you kind of can waddle in the water for a bit before it washes back out. That's what I'm talking about. It's pretty unpredictable for the most part because it all depends on the tide, but I've been scouting this spot out since then, and the swash has proven to be pretty consistent. Like I swear, the water blankets a good chunk of the shore so perfectly at just this spot. It's insane. But the point is, I'm going to enter the swash zone with the RB because if you time it perfectly, and the clouds overhead are totally working in your favor, And when the water covers the shore just enough, it reflects what's up above. So for a moment, it seems like you're surrounded by clouds, especially when there's a good bit of sea foam too. So that's what I'm after this evening. And the sunset is looking so beautiful today. I wish y'all could see it. So I know it's going to add that extra layer of something special. I hope all of that made sense. It's kind of difficult to put into words exactly what I'm chasing, but I'm hoping I'll walk away with the image and I'll be able to show all of you. Anyways, it's getting a bit chilly out here, and the sun is starting to reach the point on the horizon that I'm after, so I better start lugging my lovable RB down to the swash to set up. Thanks for listening to my beachside ramblings. I'll catch you later dudes.
3: Laura Webb Nichols received her first camera, a Kodak box, from Bert, her future husband, a month after her 16th birthday. Laura's father disapproved of Bert, for now at least. He had attempted to give her the camera on her actual birthday, but her father wouldn't have any of it. Bert was a newcomer to encampment, Wyoming, off the trails and trains with speculators and miners.
2: Laura took a shine to him in the spring of 1899, and by late summer, they were in love. By October 28th, her birthday, Bert came to their door, camera in hand, but he wasn't allowed to give it to her. Nearly a month passed before Bert could warm up to Laura's parents.
3: On November 19th, Laura finally received her Kodak. Bert took her photo, and Laura was ecstatic. The next day, she took a photo of her mother in the doorway. In turn, her mother took one of Laura, and then one of Laura and Yankee the cat. My camera is the best fun, Laura concluded at the end of the roll.
2: And what's cool is that those pictures still exist.
3: Yeah, that's amazing. Do you have your first role?
2: Uh, No, definitely not. (laughs) So Encampment, Wyoming, in the late 1800s, had no camera shop, obviously. No place to pick, pick up darkroom supplies or chemicals or film. So for Christmas, Laura's father bought her a developing outfit, a developing kit, everything. And by January, she was developing film and making prints.
3: By spring of the next year, the 16-year-old Laura had become an entrepreneur, selling portraits of neighbors. From this moment until her death in 1962, Laura photographed everything, amassing nearly 18,000 photos. Photography
2: quickly enveloped her young life. Even her father pitched in, naming his new horse Kodak. She and her mother would often go out walking, each trading the camera back and forth. And I I think her mother was kind of a photographer herself. I don't know if she took pictures before Laura got her camera or just really took the photography, but they were a duo.
3: At the age of 23, she began to take her work more seriously. Now it wasn't just a few snapshots for pocket money. This was art. Through correspondence, school, and trial and error, Laura became a skilled photographer, but was apparently still using that old Kodak.
2: That is, until 1907, when she met fellow photographer George Irving. He helped her with the more technical aspects of the darkroom, as well as how to shoot on a five by seven camera. In 1909, she ended up buying that same camera from him. And we we, uh, saw that camera, it's in the museum that we'll be talking about a little bit later.
3: She wished to make this her career, her life, but Bert would have none of it. Despite his lack of support, she opened up her own home studio, by day, she was on the road, bringing her 5x7 to ranches in nearby towns, and by night, she was printing.
2: By 1910, she was doing such a good business that she was looking into expanding into camera rentals and supplies. Essentially, she wanted to open her own camera store, selling the entire Ansco line.
3: For Laura, photography and the darkroom were escapes from her crumbling marriage, which had disintegrated after two children. They divorced after 11 years. She was single by 1912, a working girl as she called it. Her business prospered, her photography became refined and her Ansco line was doing very well.
2: But two years later, she remarried. From the looks of it, she was pressured into it somehow. For the next decade, Laura slipped into a depression. With four more children to raise, her photography wasn't quite set aside but became more of a job. Her new husband was restless and kind of a deadbeat, jumping from job to job and place to place.
3: Finally, Laura took control of the family and purchased a shop in the downtown of Encampment, opening her Rocky Mountain studio. Here, she created her studio and darkroom, a business that would see her through the next decade.
2: She became an official Kodak photo finisher, and people in the neighboring towns would drop off their film at the local drugstore, and Laura would pick it up and develop it, print it, and return it to them. Though the business did well enough, it wasn't quite enough to cover the family's expenses, which may have been her husband's fault at that point. Regardless, most of the work for which she's now known comes from this era, not just the portraits, but the shots of life, the landscapes, the small slivers, the moments of captured time.
3: These are the photos she's most remembered for taking. They are the bulk of the book edited by Nicole Jean Hill.
2: Let's quickly talk about that book for a second. I got a copy of it. You have not got a copy of it yet. I am
3: going to be getting a copy of it.
2: I'm not a big photo book guy. But <laughs> I'm I'm not Are you sure.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, photo
2: history, sure, but <laughs> yes. the actual photo books, not not a lot. This is something very special. It's very yeah. it's laid out very differently than a lot of the photo books, a lot of the historical photo books. Mm-hmm. It just jumps, no title page jumps right into the portraits, just throws you in. Yeah. And you go through like one hundred fifteen portraits or, or a photos, not portraits necessarily.
3: Yeah, she's an incredible photographer.
2: It's amazing photography. Now, she wasn't a surrealist by any stretch of the imagination. And so a lot of the photos that are that a lot of the photos that were picked are a little on the weird side. Mm-hmm. So it gives maybe be a skewed representation of her whole body of work. But that skewed representation is really fun. Yeah. So the editor, Nicole Jean Hill, she, she, you know, she picked and chose her favorite ones or the best ones fitting the book.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it makes her seem, it makes Laura seem like almost an avant-garde photographer. And in a lot of ways she really was. Yeah. It also shows that life in that period of Wyoming wasn't just bronco busting and all seriousness. There's a lot mm-hmm. of fun to be had out there. And she took a picture, she took a lot of pictures of a lot of fun. And
5: mm-hmm. the book
2: is just It's a fun book to read and to look at. I'm sorry, go on.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Laura moved to Stockton, California in 1935 and spent the next 20 years on the West Coast. She continued to shoot, but now photography was more of a hobby. Still very much part of her life, but not a source of income.
2: She retired in 1956 and returned to encampment where she remained the rest of her life. It was during that time when a woman named Nancy Anderson lived with her. With Laura in her 80s and Nancy in her 20s, they would develop and print together in a house Laura named Heepa Livin.
3: We visited the Grand Encampment Museum this past summer. The traveling collection of her photos curated by Nicole Jean Hill were on display, as was the permanent collection curated by Nancy Anderson. The museum also held her 5x7 camera, which we mentioned earlier. Yeah,
2: it was a kind of amazing to see. But it was kind of amazing to see her, her photos. Well,
3: we were like searching for it for a while because we're like, where is it? We saw uh, her her photos.
2: Yeah. And it had a couple of her small cameras there yes. and her developing. If you see, there's a picture of Laura developing at a, like, a square developing tank. On She's sitting down at the table and she's mm-hmm. looking at a negative. That's the same thing that we saw. We were able to, let's not say touch it, look at it very closely. <laughs> yeah. I don't fanboy much, but I fanboyed the hell out of that.
3: Oh my gosh, that museum was so much fun.
2: It was, it was a big museum. And it was was just, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And we got, it was, I I love museums like that. So when we arrived, we, we got there just in time for the only tour of the day, which was looking back a little scary about that. That one tour is the only way to see the collection. It goes from building to building and the tour guide unlocks and locks the doors. So if you don't get there for the tour, you don't see anything. And that's a bummer, but we arrived on time. So yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah, towards the end of the tour, we saw an older woman delivering a bale of straw to the museum, you know, naturally, right? It happens. (laughs) This museum isn't simply one building. Like we said, it was a collection of buildings and gardens maintained, um, like a small town.
2: So as the tour ended and after we saw near the the Prince of Laura's and uh, we, we, you know, fanboyed out. We went inside the main building and we passed the woman who had delivered the straw. She was kind of relaxing on the bench outside with one of her friends. Mm -hmm. And we talked to... Tim Nicholas, who kind of runs the museum. He's a writer, really nice guy. Yeah, we had a little conversation with him.
3: Yeah, so he asked us if we wanted to talk to the woman outside. She had, he said, a good knowledge of Laura's work. We agreed, but at first we didn't think much of it. So you ran off.
2: (laughs) We wanted to do an interview with somebody about Laura's work. Oh, here's somebody who knows something about it. Because he he had some knowledge, but Mm -hmm. we kind of, I don't know, we wanted something, we wanted to feel that, That special connection. And so I ran out to the car. I grabbed my recorder after asking permission, obviously. And you made small talk. Yes. And you learned a little bit about her.
3: I did. And (laughs) And I didn't. (laughs) I kind of didn't tell you. No,
2: nobody told me anything.
3: (laughs) I was like in shock, honestly. And I'm so sorry. I should have said something. I feel so bad that I didn't. But I was like, oh, she was just an an incredible light. Like she was so sweet and funny and sassy. Oh my God, so sassy. And honestly, one of the coolest experiences of my life.
2: I think so. Mine, mine as well. Right before I pressed record, we were talking with her about how we'd kind of include her interview with the show, kind of fold it in there somewhat naturally. And then not knowing who she was, I said one of the dumbest things of my life. I said that, you know, we'll, we'll just do like a basic biography of Laura because like really the most remarkable and important thing is that her collection survived it all. And... Nancy Anderson,
3: the lady that lived with her,
2: (laughs) gave me a look that was, you stupid motherfucker. (laughs) So just take a listen. Here's the interview and understand I'm an idiot. (laughs) Because we'll have to do a little bit of bio on her which is pretty, pretty basic. And then I guess the more, um, well, the more remarkable thing is that the collection was found at all.
4: Yeah.
1: Really?
2: I mean, okay, maybe not, but (laughs) these things are so often lost.
1: Yeah, They are very, very frequently lost. Yeah.
2: Okay. After she passed, what happened to the collection of her photography? All, All right.
1: right. I, um, I lived with Laura during, oh. during some of the final months of her life. Okay. And um, I knew her very well. There are, really, there are sort of three parts of her um, that makes her archive so unique. Yeah, yeah. They're not only the 24,000 negatives, the diary wow. that goes on for 65 years, wow. and her library... Mm-hmm. which was uh, an amazing liberal kind of thing for that she relied on. Okay. And, all, uh, you know, it takes all three, I think, to understand the person that was Laura. Okay. And the family, through the years, well, they referred to the diaries, and they were mostly at her son's house, but um, and the negatives were Oh, this is something else. The negatives. <laughs> in 1962, um, when she passed, they were stored in a cabinet, eight nitrates to an envelope.
2: Wow. <laughs> Okay,
1: <laughs> and then getting on most the, the bulk of the collection mm-hmm. is nitrate, of course yeah. yeah, and then we get into acetate into the 50s, which is normal, mm-hmm. but that's just um, the, the, um, the The nitrates as I say were very fragile yeah. um, Her son named me as curator of the, the collection so that something could be, it, I can't, it was actually housed at the museum, but no one had ever really done anything with it, Okay, and
4: yeah. they
1: had a flood. Oh. And the, um, at the very bottom of the cabinet, everything was pretty well, in cardboard and mm-hmm. various things. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the flood had uh, penetrated the boxes on the bottom, and was coming up so I took them over to the old house and I spread them around and there were three thousand in a box that were not in her catalog oh. so then we realized I mean this is in the 90s late yeah. 90s we realized something had to happen yeah and so we undertook to. Not only put them in archival packaging mm-hmm. and uh, preserve the images as best we could, mm-hmm. but also to copy any information she had included in what she called her log, mm-hmm. yeah. which was a, a fewer than um, just a fewer than 18,000. So these were That's all incredible. by Laura, yeah. identified as two time taken, Mm -hmm. content, um, any other notes she might have taken, Mm -hmm. because she did also accumulate many images from other people in the process of having her studio Mm -hmm. and so forth. So the first thing to do was take all of these known negatives Mm -hmm. and put them in the uh, envelopes, and then eventually, they went into the the silver-colored bags that you seal with a gun yeah. to go into a, a, a free, into freezing temperatures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the first thing was to copy everything mm-hmm. from her logs onto the envelope, insert mm-hmm. the negatives. So that took a couple winters. Yeah. And mostly my my father and I helped did that. Mm-hmm. And then I dealt with the 3,000, just organizing them as best I could. Mm-hmm. And then we knew they had to be scanned. Yeah. I had wonderful advice. I had advice from professors of photography. Um, I contacted the, East, the Eastman folks. I read every, every source I could about yeah. how to preserve nitrates. Mm-hmm. Now I... <laughs> I lived on. (laughs) I lived over by Hannah, the coal mining town. Okay, yeah. And a a fellow from Chicago, who was a computer genius Mm -hmm. and also a photographer, Mm -hmm. taught us my husband primarily, but other volunteers how to scan. Mm -hmm. He ordered the whole system for us, and and taught us most uh, you know that took some time yeah he he did all that his name was Gene Tucker he was a genius (laughs) these images and the ones in Nicole's exhibit yeah come from those original scans oh they haven't been they hadn't had to have any work they didn't rescan anything Mm -hmm. so this, this I don't know People kept dropping from the sky, you know, just like you today. They yeah. actually came over here to deliver a bale of straw. Oh, we saw
2: it out there. Very nice. <laughs> so-
3: Oh, wow. uh, yeah we scan all our negatives so we absolutely right. know how and, long uh, it could take to yeah. do
1: all that and well you know a lot of these ended up the, the larger ones you know they're like 25 megs mm-hmm. yeah so they the file is huge mm-hmm. and gino mm-hmm. as we called him mm-hmm. you <laughs> won those first discs that we saved to were in those uh, cardboard boxes and you had to have a special a uh, disc uh, pl- uh, copier yeah. where you oh, insert. Yeah. I mean, that's what they were on <laughs> wow. when Nicole took them.
0: Oh, really?
1: One hundred wow. of those early <laughs> DVDs, wow. costing twenty-five dollars a piece. Yeah, I remember you, that. Yes. I remember that. Oh, you're too young to
2: do. That. Oh, I wish that were true. <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway, fortunately, I don't know why. I happened to come over the day of the flood and rescue the negatives. Mm-hmm. Gino dropped from the sky. And then Laura's son, who had ample means, um, funded the scanner the scanning process bought
4: mm-hmm.
1: bought the Apple and the um, it was a state of the art scanning machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gino taught us ignoramuses how to do it, so we just proceeded as though we had good sense.
0: <laughs> and, so you can do. And,
1: and three winters later, <laughs> here, here we have this collection. That's amazing. Wow. And um, of course, some of them, you know, Nicole did quite a bit. Well, these two were enhanced by uh, by Jean Tucker for this exhibit. Okay. In the beginning. He said, you must, as you're scanning, just make a little note and mark some favorites. Yeah. So out of the thousands and thousands, I only have slightly over 3,000 favorites. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't okay. can even imagine trying to <laughs> What a and task. Then the call comes as an artist residency at Brush Creek and... Um, she takes an interest in the collection, takes the hundred DVDs back to Humboldt State, <laughs> and what they have a renaissance. Is all I can say. You know, they're reborn, <laughs> and and so the whole collection. And also, I did the um, the finding aids using the Library of Congress oh. subject headings. Okay. Because I'd been yeah. I sometimes I was a librarian and, and so I kind of tended to do everything through that.
2: Okay, that makes sense. But that's
1: mm-hmm. and and now the um the original negatives, all of them are down at American Heritage, uh at the University of Wyoming in their big freezing room. Okay. Which awesome. is
4: yeah, yeah. Because yeah, a
1: museum this size can't possibly have the facility. No. Oh, see, I, I do interviews. Oh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I know where the <laughs> lips. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, it's um, you know, it's it's truly amazing how everybody sees so far, and this this collection. It's just beginning to emerge into the public eye. It is through yeah. the reviews and mm-hmm. thanks to Alan Soft and mm-hmm. and several things, we all see Laura differently, but uh, the collection, the collection is saved. The diaries are here. Mm-hmm. Mm. We're trying to gather the library back. I had many of them, but several after Laura's passing, several of her uh, volumes went. Oh, just to friends through the family and um, but it's it's an it's an unbelievable archive and I truly believe that it's you know you you won't find anything like this in any town in the West.
2: Mm -hmm. This is very unique.
1: Fourth grade education uh, very literate Mm -hmm. um, and yet yet still recording her daily life, plus a lot of other stuff in the diaries. And, yeah. you know, it's just a very, very unique view of uh, of living. In 35, she just sort of threw her hands in the air and went to California. And then she retired back to encampment in the 50s. And that's when I knew her. Uh-huh. And um, then she she passed, as I said, in 62. Okay,
2: so about little, almost 10 years very she was unique back.
1: woman. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. You live
3: in her home.
1: And I live in her house.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, her son sold me the house, and uh, almost everything was in it. Mm-hmm. So I really live with her almost on a daily basis, yeah. <laughs> except for the things that I brought to the museum for the yeah. Laura display. Mm-hmm. But
3: um, well, we're so lucky to have you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of work.
2: <laughs> wow. So the she was shooting for decades here.
1: Well, vaguely from I think the earliest pi- pictures in the collection were done by her mother. So the collection goes from ninety seven, and she was here until thirty five. But she. She left uh, her husband and two sons at encampment, and she made regular trips back. But in the meanwhile, she's out taking pictures of a uh, place. Oh, wonderful stuff. Nobody's even looked at it. Angel's Camp. Uh, she worked for some very wealthy ranch owners. Uh, one of the big ranches is now a garlic uh, farm. Hmm. But her, and she worked at a children's home. In Stockton. Okay. She went from being a kitchen helper to being director oh, wow. <laughs> with wow. yeah and there's some marvelous you know all the the, the giant trees and all those things. Mm-hmm. Oh there's some wonderful pictures of San Francisco mm-hmm. when she went on um, you know to conventions at social work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh there's one that's world-class. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Okay. Yeah. okay which one is that <laughs> <laughs> go on
1: you don't want to ask me about laura i'm about like turning on a no radio. i that's,
2: that's we're here for the duration <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> absolutely yeah absolutely um
1: but there's the whole aspect of her california years
2: Okay, that's really not touched on at all.
1: Not ever. There's no, nothing is here from that time frame.
2: So what, (laughs) what were those years like then?
1: What were what? What
2: were those years like then in California?
1: Well, she was, she on the children's home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She was credited with her social work Mm -hmm. statewide. These are, you know, a lot of children um, who were displaced by the Second World War or something. Oh, yeah. You know, she's... uh, treats them like human beings, mm. uh, you know, she had a very understanding philosophy she lived of her own, mm-hmm. from her own heart, that yeah. she, whether it was taking a picture, or whether taking care of a child, or yeah. looking at a mountain scene, it was all coming from within what she truly was. Yeah. Mm. Yeah.
4: Wow. <laughs> <I> mean, like, <laughs> no. <that's... laughs> Shall we all? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, a little bit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> but um, as as you'll notice, Nicole really likes to focus on her portrait work. yeah mm-hmm. and I am well, um, oh, I don't know, it sounds kind of highfalutin <laughs> but I, lo- I love the aesthetics that blends in with the local landscape mm-hmm. yeah um, and of course, the historical aspect and I mean, aesthetically, her compositions are just mind blowing. They really really are, are. yeah. They really, really are. And um, I mean, look, you know, look at these. They're they're just. uh, They seem so modern. (laughs) You know, Malay. Yes. You can look at her as. you know, you can again. you can compare her with with some of the master artists like you, you can. Franz Hals and Rosa Bonheur, and this is perfectly Malay. This could be the Angelus. They're out picking rhubarb, mm-hmm. and but she had that aesthetics, the sense that was so um, indivisible from her own intuition. You know, which to mm-hmm. me is the definition of genius. Mm-hmm. And she I'm shoots. rather sentimental, yeah. you know. So
3: she shoots oh. lower, which I like. You were both you know? low-shooters, yeah. yeah. So kind of more of like a waist-level look at, right. at photograph, and all these are, right. are that.
1: And to me, Wyoming is the horizon, yes. the skyscape, yes. the landscape. And it, it's in so many, you know, the ranch pictures with the horses and I, oh, ju- yeah, yeah. I just think that is that and rhubarb are probably. But then, I have over three thousand papers. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't know how to pick. There, there. I've looked at a lot of. She has a lot of the other photos are online. And oh, uh, you have. Oh yeah, I've looked at. Uh, I would say hundreds, I guess. Really? Of her yeah, are, I guess the university has them up.
1: They are.
2: And wow,
1: that must have
2: taken a long time <laughs> I, this is what I do this is all I do really <laughs> and I fell very I, I like frontier photographers especially frontier women photographers there are a few out there and I was so taken by hers that I don't know what it was I had this I had I really connected there's another photographer from Montana who I connected yes, with yes so I'm too, very well acquainted
1: with her too but yeah um,
2: with Laura's it was there was with Evelyn's, there's, there's a good sense of humor there. There's a lot of funniness there. Right. With Laura's, there was that, like you said, the sentimentality mm-hmm. that just really drew me in. It um, does. Almost, almost in a good way, manipulating you. Right. And I love that.
1: Right. They're almost, they, they are hypnotic. <laughs> to they are. Me. Yes. There's no other word. They're mm-hmm. hypnotic. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, ah. Oh. You know, like yes. this, this. And uh, then, I think of Van Gogh in the yellow room, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, she is comparable to, and look, look at this, look at, look at the skyline, and then the men reflected, you know, the two things coming together on that pipeline. And this one, I don't think I better, this is a wonderful one, because over on the other wall, We have some of the Victorian houses and encampment. Mm -hmm. Pristine, beautiful. The boom is on. Everybody is optimistic. Uh, Wonderful gingerbread, Queen Anne houses. Mm -hmm. And then we have the decline. And what could more establish a sense of the decline than this house? Unpainted, uh, pickets out of the fence, Uh, pieces of the gingerbread missing from the porch, and what does she put in front of it? Two smiling children. Mm-hmm. So what? I mean, the message is is profound, and yet it was unintentional. I truly believe, you know, that it was such a part of her intuition that she didn't she didn't have to define or think about anything.
2: So do you think that she would be able to explain? That? Like, why, if you asked her, why would you take this picture, would she just, what would her explanation her be? Her
1: explanation probably would be I wanted to get a good picture of the Parkinson kids. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm, I'm, I'm right there.
1: But you know, we used to, um, upstairs, she had a big old roll top desk. And that's where we developed, I developed pictures with her. Oh, wow. And it was so fun to watch the image emerge. Mm-hmm. And she would say, oh, this is bum, mm-hmm. You know, or this is good. You know, it's... <laughs>
3: I should take lessons from her, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I have a small, like a very, very small dark room at my house. Do you? Mm-hmm. Isn't it fun? Oh, I love it. I absolutely love uh, it. Oh, that, that must be amazing to be Yeah,
1: in. yeah. And, so was, uh, was she
2: still photographing
1: when you knew her? Oh gosh, she took, she took pictures up to the day she died, just a few days before, of the neighborhood children oh, who okay. had come to visit. <laughs> I was there, and she also wrote, um, she wrote an entry into her diary on the back of an envelope that was later added to the diaries. I mean, you know, it's, it's an almost impossible story. Yeah. And she's being discovered. I think really, as I said before, I think her sensibilities are more European than Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> <That's right.
2: laughs> maybe. Is that, is that why she left for a bit,
1: maybe? why she Is
2: that why she left Wyoming for a little?
1: Actually... She was getting away from a very bad domestic situation.
4: Okay. Mm-hmm. And she yeah. just
1: arrived in California with 50 cents or something and started working as a domestic. You've got to see some of the California. Yeah, beaches. I would like to. I would love to. Somebody needs to do something with that. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of the, the ranch where she. There's one picture of the ranch. Was it in Gilroy? What? Gilroy? You said garlic, right? It's a garlic farm. It's got to be Gilroy, to, California. Uh, table Mountain. Is there a table something mountain? Oh, I'm not I, sure. have, uh, I have all of her pictures on a hard drive at my house, and wow. plus the finding aids and everything. Yeah. So I look at them really frequently. Well, that's great. That <laughs> must be nice. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Nice but oh. I, you know, it's, it's, um, it's so wonderful that she's being discovered and being given credit for the amazing photographer and person that she was. Mm. Yeah. yeah.
2: How was she discovered? I mean, you knew, I mean, you're the reason she's discovered, well,
1: then Nicole, really. No, I, I uh, Victor and the other volunteers and I were just sort of the preservers. And then okay. Nicole came along okay. because they were, well... They were going to be here, and um, and Nicole came, and then, so I'm the preserver. uh, Nicole opened up the collection to the world Mm -hmm. with her, you know, with her position at Humboldt State and her work in taking them off the plastic cover, whatever (laughs) they are, (laughs) you know, and and getting the book printed and. So it's it's all worked together, yeah. it really has, yeah. This museum, with the professional director, mm-hmm. now has a greater appreciation for, you know what they say, yeah. a prophet's without honor in his own land. Well, mm-hmm. here you are, yeah. you know, it's hard to be recognized, it's just, uh, but it's, it's truly, truly, and I think she will emerge as one of the women of the West, you yeah. know, a photographer of the West, and the she believed in the in the myth of the West. I mean, she wrote really kind of poetry about cowboy stuff, and she loved western writers and but yet there's kind of a stark reality in a lot of it too, mm-hmm. like the picture of her husband after the flu. That is not usual to her collection, okay. but um, she took it for a purpose, I guess. There's a picture, she's on the balcony of a hotel, and there, uh, it's kind of a, it looks like a warehouse area mm-hmm. with sort of tall walls, and then if I remember correctly, you see part of the train depot in the background, and right in the middle is an artist with his model, and he's making a sculpture, and there's a woman sitting on a chair on a platform. It is fantastic.
4: Oh, wow. <laughs> <That> sounds amazing. <laughs> wow.
3: Yeah.
1: Thank Not you so problem. much
3: for talking with us. This has been oh. incredible. Yes. I mean, a highlight to the trip. Yeah, we drove out is... here just to see the collection, but to like be able to talk with you, and oh, that you knew her, you. and like, all of all of your hard work we obviously really appreciate it yeah well, it was really
1: awesome yes it's it was so well it mm. thrilling to meet you yeah, yeah. it was wonderful. 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 wonderful thank you so much yeah, thank you know you're, you're, you're right yeah. be
2: safe and you too <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. thank you good. thank you so much it was
1: much. fun I hope he finds find something. yes
2: yes thank you
4: good okay. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Behold thy portrait day by day, I've seen its features die. First the mustachios go away, then off the whiskers fly. That nose I loved to gaze upon, that bold and manly brow, Are vanished, fled, completely gone, alas, where are they now?
3: This weird little poem about the deterioration of photographs was written in 1847. Apparently, people were realizing that photographs were not really permanent very early on. Really quick, mustachios? Is that like a thing? I've never heard that before. It's like pistachio and mustache together, and it's fucking amazing. It's blowing my mind right now.
2: The Laura Webb Nichols archive was nearly lost due to a number of factors, but mostly improper preservation methods. So much more has been learned about the proper care and handling of photographic prints, negatives and plates since Laura began shooting in 1899. Even since her death in 1962, we've come up with what seems like the gold standard of preservation.
3: Even the simple methods that many of us use now are light years ahead of what they had in early photography. Kodak insists that their negatives could potentially last a thousand years, but due to poor preservation methods, most last 20, maybe 30, especially in places with high humidity and sweltering summers. Uh, you'll know if they're deteriorating because they have this wonderful, like, vinegary smell, and I've smelt that on some of my mom's uh, old negatives. She, I, I guess I'm the historian of the family. And so I have all of my mom's negatives.
2: <laughs> well, when they start to deteriorate like that, now obviously they can get really, really bad. But when that vinegar smell first appears, is there any discoloration or anything happening?
3: Yeah. yeah it it kind of gets like, it almost peels and cracks.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah. and that's just from improper storage
3: uh probably yeah it's so just like how Laura Webb Nichols had issues i think it was a flood that almost ruined all her yeah uh, images i think something like that happened with my mom's negatives something with like you know just water damage and sure. then mold and and then moving like from warm climate to you know memphis where it's like humid climate to you know up in crescent city where it's like totally like (laughs) moist climate, yeah, constantly (laughs) raining. So, um, you know, keeping things dry, can be really difficult.
2: So I guess it's a good thing. We're doing a whole feature on how to archive shit. Why not? Let's do it. Let's take a look at how places like the Smithsonian Institute and Library of Congress and National Archives are going about preserving photos. Obviously we can't maintain their exacting standards, but it's good to at least know what's being done to preserve our photographic history.
3: And also, we fully understand why smaller museums can't meet these standards either, but we'll be taking a look at a few tiers of standards that almost anyone can meet.
2: The gold standard of historical photographic preservation.
3: large and well-supported museums like the Smithsonian use the same preservation methods as the National Archives and the Library of Congress.
2: As far as prints and photographic negatives go, cold storage is the key. The ultimate goal is a preservation lifespan of 500 years. To achieve this, they've come up with the ideal temperatures and relative humidity specific to the negatives they're trying to preserve.
3: And by they, we mean the International Standards Organization, also known as ISO. Now, you might have heard ISO before, eh? as in film speed, like 100 ISO. That doesn't mean that 100 speed film has 100 ISOs in it. It's simply a standard for light sensitivity established by the International Standards Organization. This same organization has established standards for basically everything industrial, commercial, and technical. This includes not just film, but film preservation.
2: For instance, ISO standard number 18911 establishes standards for the preservation of film. Black and white negatives on acetate, basically most film bases, they're to be refrigerated at a cool 41 degrees Fahrenheit or five degrees Celsius with a relative humidity of 20 to 40%. Black and white on polyester, and so that's like Sfema is on polyester. They can relax at a basic room temperature of 70 degrees Fahrenheit with roughly the same 20 to 40% humidity. Color, on the other hand, demands much more care, which means a chilly and frosty 14 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 10 degrees Celsius and 20 to 50% humidity.
3: That's probably why when you go to a photo store, a lot of the color is in a refrigerator and a lot of the black and white is on a shelf.
2: Photographic prints, on the other hand, as well as glass plates, they can be stored around 65 degrees Fahrenheit or 18 degrees Celsius at around 30 to 40% humidity. And that was actually surprising, the glass plates. That was pretty surprising.
3: But temperature and humidity play only one role in preservation. Pests and light can also destroy a collection. By pests, the Smithsonian is mostly concerned with insects. it's assumed that the facility is already rat-proof. To learn more about this, definitely visit (laughs) museumpest.net. And no, we're not kidding about this. It's real, it's fascinating, go check it out.
2: But as far as light is concerned, this should come as no surprise to anyone who's ever visited a museum. So to combat the harmful UV rays, good museums and archives use UV filters on all of their fluorescent lights.
3: Of course, the museum or archive doesn't just keep negatives and prints lying around. For this, the Smithsonian specifically relies upon the standards used by the Library of Congress. These are exacting and strict and kind of weirdly complex.
2: Yeah. So for typical negatives, they insist upon off-white paper of a specific thickness with a certain pH made of high alpha cellulose content pulp, which is free of optical brighteners and metallic impurities. Prints are usually stored in polypropylene sleeves. This can all change, however, depending upon how often they expect the items to be handled. There are also specifications for types of glue where the folds in the paper lie and how the envelope or enclosure is constructed.
3: Fortunately, these standards are used by basically every archival supply company from Bags Unlimited to Gaylord Archival. To be sure, check to see if the product has passed the PAT. The photographic activities test, yet another standard by the International Standards Organization, specifically ISO 18916, if you're keeping track.
2: So once properly housed, negatives, prints, and plates are boxed in very specific boxes depending upon the size of the item. The same PAT standards apply.
3: Though all of this can seem far out of our reach, we can get surprisingly close. Maybe we don't have a walk-in cooler or a deep freezer. Maybe we have no idea about pH levels of our envelopes or even humidity in our houses.
2: So now that we've covered a little of what the Smithsonian does, let's talk about what we can do. When it comes to enclosures, like what we put our film in, most of us slide our film into Printfile binder pages. These are made of polyethylene and pass the pat test and are available in basically any photo store. Printfile also makes paper envelopes and folders that are all Pat-passed.
3: There are other companies out there making and selling enclosures too, and pretty much everything is Pat-passed. Just check to make sure. Even most of the envelope enclosures you get from labs that process your film are just fine.
2: Enclosures to avoid are Ziploc bags, Regular letter envelopes, craft paper, for example, and basically anything that isn't obviously made to house negatives. If you're even a tiny bit serious about preserving your negatives, just use the right stuff. Start right there.
3: When you've collected a bunch of your negatives, you'll need a place to store them. Print File sells three ring binders, and honestly, they're better than nothing. Enclosed binders are probably the best bet as far as binders go
2: but perhaps even a bit better are boxes and alliteration. Again, print file sells letter-sized document boxes that are pat past. Protecting your negatives and prints from light is pretty easy. Just don't leave them sitting around and you're pretty much good. <laughs>
3: But what about temperature and humidity? The interior of houses and apartments fluctuate greatly when it comes to temp and humidity. This is especially true if you don't have central air or heating like my fucking self, because (laughs) for some reason, they just decided not to put air conditioning in this house, and it's like 100 degrees in this room right now. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm such a baby. It's not even probably that bad. It's probably like 80 degrees, but still.
2: I can see you (laughs) glistening over there.
3: I am glistening.
2: Most of us don't have the ability to devote an entire room of our house to archival storage. Believe me, I wish I did, because I absolutely would. Maybe some of us can swing a second fridge, maybe, but for the rest of us, we actually suggest a closet. This can be a sort of a touchy matter. Some closets, especially those against an outside wall, tend to collect moisture, especially in the Pacific Northwest. This is really bad for negatives, so just don't use those.
3: But if you can find a dry closet away from exterior walls, this could be a fine place to archive your boxes of negatives. The temperature and humidity in closets tends not to fluctuate as much as the rest of the living space. You can even use a bucket of damp red to suck out extra moisture, which could lead to mold, fungus, and general nastiness, so you should probably be doing that.
2: Yeah, before I moved to the Pacific Northwest, I had no idea what damper it was.
3: Now it's in every room. Now,
2: it's, now I just use it everywhere. Yeah, it's it's basically, I just sprinkle it on the floor. <laughs> All right, so that covers storage. We're good with storage. But we don't just store our negatives and prints. Most of us also store digitized versions of these. Our scans are kind of making doubles of everything. Whether you're using a DSLR or a flatbed scanner, or you get your scans straight from the lab, this is what you do to make doubles.
3: Each of us has or should have some regular standards for scanning. For instance, I scan at 300 dpi and save as a TIFF file. We strongly suggest not saving it as a JPEG, as it's lossy. If you're musically minded, think of TIFFs as FLAC files and JPEGs as shitty MP3s that you downloaded off LimeWire in 2003. So yes,
2: Enya did not sing the theme song to Gladiator. Sorry. But as with anything digital, back up your shit, even that Enya song. It wasn't Enya. I have my scans backed up on a regular hard drive as well as a solid state hard drive, regular drives that contain spinning disks that are spun by a motor. If that motor fails, you've lost everything, like everything, all of your scans, all of anything that's on there but a solid state drive, it's basically like a huge thumb drive, but like holds a terabyte. There are no moving parts to break and it's really secure.
3: In our interview, Nancy mentioned that she organized Laura's photos using the Library of Congress standards. This is wonderful for museums, but is widely impractical for normal photographers. For
2: me, organization is about four things. The date the photo was taken, the camera that I used, the emulsion that I used and how I developed it. My print file pages are arranged by date and, On them, I note the camera, the film, and the developer. For my digital files, I name them year, month, day, and then the camera, and finally the film in one ridiculously long file name that just works for me. Each digitized role then goes into an identically named folder. If you don't already have a system that works for you, feel free to use that one.
3: And if you are not good at organization like myself, I would suggest not worrying about everything you have shot in the past and start this new system of archiving with the next role you develop. Make it a habit and get a good workflow. And when you're snowed in or have motivation to look at your past negatives, then go for it. I would suggest this because I personally have such a massive backlog of images going all the way back to when I was in high school. If I pull out all my negatives, I know myself well enough that I'm going to get overwhelmed and quit. So let's just start with today, let's start today.
2: And you know really that's that's All archiving is, we kind of covered it. It's a system Mm -hmm. that both works and works for you. You gotta find that compromise somewhere. Find out what's within your ability and means to do, and then do it. If stored properly, your prints and your negatives will outlive you, they'll outlive your kids, and they'll probably last a few generations beyond that, providing global warming doesn't do us all in. We're sorry.
3: And maybe you'll end up on some random weirdo's wall, like me, I have a bunch of tintypes of random strangers on on my wall.
2: (laughs) Or maybe you'll be the next, or the next, next Laura Webb Nichols. So make sure to preserve your shit. People are going to need that later on.
3: All the resources that we used on our archival segment will be in our show notes. So check the links. you imagine a world where all we had to look at were pictures on the internet and incredibly high-priced photo books by famous photographers. This is where zines come in. It's photography in print, but at a fairly reasonable price.
2: And we've got two zines to review today, sort of. You'll see. The first one is one that I'm reviewing called Half Frame Journal by Sean Granton, and it's his first zine. It's not quite your typical photo zine, but I think we're getting to a point in our photozine history, or the photozine present, I guess, where there isn't really a typical photozine, and I'm loving that. Everybody's kind of doing their own thing, and that's awesome. Half-Frame Journal is a mix of text, photos, and drawings from Sean's small sketchbook. The photos were, I guess, obviously, taken on a half-frame Olympus pen during the during a single four-day bike tour through the Willamette Valley in Oregon. The first part of the book is mostly text, notes on the trip, on the bike, short histories of the valley, The camera, as well as his experiences shooting and journaling comics. The comics are numerous and are mostly maps and directions. They kind of give you a feel for the trip, of figuring it out as you go. The zine is arranged chronologically and allows you to tag along on this four-day jaunt from the comfort of your own home. While I love tons of photo zines, very few make me want to just get out and shoot, especially when I'm kind of in this rut that I'm in now. But Sean's did... uh, while I, was, while I was reading it, I kind of got over that pretty quickly, but he did. It was When I was reading it, I was like, damn it, I want to get out there again. The zine also came with postcards, stickers, and it's, it's great seeing photographers do little extra things with their zines. Not everybody can be Liz Potter, but everybody who does a zine can do something a little bit extra. And this is all for only six bucks. And seriously, that's a wonderful... I love seeing low-priced zines. I just love that. And you can follow Sean at... Urban Adventure League PDX on Instagram and we'll have a link to his Etsy page on our show notes.
3: The other zine we had, I forgot to do <laughs> my zine review on. Wow,
2: the, um, the author of this zine must feel horrible that you forgot about them.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's you.
2: <laughs> yeah. But is. also
3: it's kind of you, but it's also kind of me as well, because I was a Kind of a big part of this one.
2: This, I think out of all of my zines, obviously not six by seven that we both did together, but Mm -hmm. out of the zines that are supposed to be fully mine, I think this is the one that you... Could essentially say you co-authored.
3: I mean, I didn't take the pictures, but I helped pick the photos that you chose um, or strongly suggested most of them. And even the layout, uh, not the layout in general, but just the photos that go together. Also, one of my favorite photos you've ever taken.
2: Well, that's the thing. I shot most of these early mornings Mm -hmm. and we were on the phone for probably over half of these.
3: Yep. So you were,
2: you were there with me taking the photos on on the phone, but still. And after I got home and developed them, I showed them to you like immediately that day. Yep. And then we went through them after all of them were collected and you picked out the ones that you liked. So, I mean, I, I mean, I had final say because it's my scene, but I don't know if I really disagree with any of your choices, maybe one or two here or there, but-
3: you know, for <laughs> the most bad. part, no.
2: So no, what, this is great. What this is, is a photo zine that I made last winter when I was shooting, trying to figure out the Chamonix. I didn't mm-hmm. like it. I think I've, I must have talked about this in the podcast before. Yeah, I, I
3: do. I, I do remember you just, you just, it was foreign to you still. Yeah. I think you were you were so comfortable with the Intrepid. It was part of you. And mm-hmm. the Chamonix was just like, okay, this is like... Kind of fancy.
2: <laughs> but it's the fanciest camera that I have. And yeah, I wasn't real comfortable with it. I did a summer with it and I, I didn't hate it, but I didn't connect with it at all. And mm-hmm. so I spent the winter getting connected with the camera. And this is a zine that came out of it. It's, it's shot on a lot of different emulsions. The cover is the Panatomic X that you gave me. Mm-hmm. And I wish there were more sheets in that pack. There was like one, I think. And oh,
3: I know. I'm it's, so it's sorry. One, oh my
2: God, it's so what good. A
3: dis- what a disappointment. I'm like, here, here's one sheet.
2: <laughs> Once you get all nine in this series, you'll be able to put them together and look at the backs of them and it'll form a picture.
3: Yay.
4: Yes, that was your
2: idea. It was based off of Garbage Pail Kids. But I think all the tops trading cards did that. Probably. I think so. <laughs> So I have some RetroPan in here. I have some, some FP4, some from HP5, some Mm X-ray. It was really just an experimental few months and they're all arranged chronologically. And by the end of it, I... Fell in love with the Chamonix, not to spoil the ending of the photo zine. I fell in love <laughs> with the Chamonix so much that I moved on to another camera, and the last three images are of, were taken by the Graflex.
3: The Foma Pan, too, in this zine is just some of the most, well, some of my most favorite shots you've ever taken. Well, thank you. I think just something about that wet, slick Seattle pavement in Foma Pan.
2: It's delicious. FOMAPAN, this was all developed in Pan's or FOMA's retro special developer. I've moved mm. on and I'm not using that developer for Pan 100 anymore. But that winter of discovering the camera and how to properly shoot and develop, and most importantly develop, Pan 100 really made the winter for me. Yeah. So this scene is really, really important to me. It's just a regular in this land issue, but it's very important to me. It's one of the more favorite things that I've done. It's $8. It's 56 pages. And please um, pick it up.
3: And- also, congratulations for shooting in the winter, Mister. I don't usually shoot in the winter because this is the zine is you getting out there.
2: It's the first time I ever shot in the winter. I usually would take like three months off from shooting, but pretty much every weekend I was out there shooting.
3: Honestly, the podcast helps motivate us to continue to shoot a little bit more, and I hope it helps everybody else too. So make a zine, you guys. Yeah,
2: yeah, make a zine. If we uh, if we are inspiring you to do anything, it, it should be to make zines. <laughs>
3: through a lens is brought to you by our lovely patreon subscribers patreon helps us pay for hosting books our newspapers.com account for research audio equipment and much much more we would like to thank our subscribers for the support we couldn't do it without you
2: If you like bonus episodes, full-length interviews, and extra nonsense, you can become a patron subscriber. We've got three different levels
3: of support, with the cheapest being less than a fucking episode. So head over to patreon.com slash lens for more info. Now we're just feeling really creepy talking like this. (laughs) Hey, Vanya. Yes? (laughs) (laughs) Why do we do that? I do not know. I just feel like I have to say it. Yeah, We
2: do it in real life too. So yeah, this is just true. What does the next week of your life look like, photographically speaking?
3: Well, I might have mentioned this before, but I have this new old trail cam I got that takes 35 millimeter. So that's something I'm working on. I'm also printing this week in the dark room. So I'm hoping that goes well. Cross fingers, cross fingers, cross.
2: I'm kind of stoked about the trail cam. My dad used one when, when I was a kid. He had a 35 millimeter trail cam. Mm-hmm. It was It was bonkers because it was just like, 36 exposures of leaves moving. So I'm very curious as to what yours will pick up.
3: (laughs) Well, so I was thinking that I should just put it in my backyard here because I know my dogs are going to be like, what the fuck is this thing? So I'm going to like flash their eyes because it comes with a flash. It takes 200 speed film. I just, I don't know, Uh, probably Bigma, the cat. And I think possibly that little possum that I keep seeing in my driveway. And who knows what else? I know. (laughs) I know. Maybe I'm a little worried about that, but... (laughs) It's going to be, like, me, like, naked in the backyard, like, in the middle of the night, just standing there like a fucking creep.
2: Why, yeah. do, you, why do you do that?
3: I don't know. <laughs> how about you? What are you doing?
2: <laughs> uh, I'll be standing naked in the backyard. <laughs> no. Well, maybe. But i don't have a backyard, so it won't be my backyard. It, so. it will
3: be yours. <laughs> and you probably are going to get picked up pretty quickly. <laughs>
2: People have good taste. What can I say? So since returning from the trip, I've basically only left the house for work, and that's sort of weird. I walk once in a while, but yeah, uh, I walk to the post office to mail out zines, and he's yeah. seen two kits. But other than that, I don't leave the house.
3: Yeah, we've been kind of like doing our little, like, let's walk. Okay. And, we've you been, know, we've been
2: saying that a lot. We've, we've okay. not very we've not done it a whole hell of a lot though.
3: Oh uh, no, we haven't, but we're trying to. And it's good because it's like it's our time to just have a conversation about like brainstorming ideas for the <laughs> podcast and then time goes by fast when you're when you're doing that.
2: Oh, absolutely. So I hope to change all of that by next episode, like getting out and doing something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. We'll see where we are with that. My go-to Eastern Washington, it's still relatively wildfire free as of the moment we're recording this. And I'd really like to keep it that way. So I'll be limiting my trips to day trips, if anything at all. And I I do hope to to make one, at least one. But honestly, I'm not feeling that urge, that great pull to go out and shoot anything just yet. And I'm not one of those people that forces myself to do it. Some people need that, and that's awesome. I'm not saying I don't need that, but I don't do that and I survive. I don't know, I'm sure that'll all change soon enough. Until then, I've still got so much to develop from July. Yes, and you'll be hearing about most of that on dev parties.
3: (laughs) And speaking of dev parties,
2: Yeah, um, that about does it for the second episode of the third season. We've made it to the end. We'll return in one week with Dev Party, where we'll be developing some film that we shot at Curlew National Grassland. Perhaps the least favorite National Grassland, but maybe my second favorite? (laughs) Behind Oglala. Yeah, there's Buffalo Gap, too. Oh, my gosh. And black cattle. Yeah, I don't know. I've, I'm really in the national grasslands. My, I'm not fucking, I'm not apologizing for that. So what the hell were you doing there? You'll have to tune in and find out in one week.
3: Where we'll also be answering the answering machine question if anybody was interested.
2: Yes, so check that out.
3: <laughs> Thank you for listening to All Through a Lens. If you'd like to contact us, we're at lens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's lens.podcast at gmail.com and we're at All Through a Lens on Twitter. You can also check out our show notes on allthroughlens.com.
2: Manya is at Sir Martian.
3: And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both
2: on Instagram. Ooh, and speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff. Hashtag All Through a Lens podcast to be featured.
3: We also do a Spotify playlist for each episode, so check those out and see what we're listening to. Just search All Through a Lens.
2: You can find our episodes on Spotify as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and- and wherever the hell else you find podcasts, subscribe and leave us a review.
3: The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com.
2: And thank you all so much for listening. We love you, and we'll see you at death party. Vanya? Yeah? You want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go.
3: I'm tired of people making fun of me for saying library. I like it. Okay, berries are delicious, and I like books, too, and I just mashed them up together, and it's library, and I'm fucking saying it. (laughs) Sorry. We...